morning. Let's turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. The Lord God of Israel says, write everything that I am about to tell you <clears throat> excuse me, in a scroll. For I, the Lord, affirm that the time will come when I will reverse the plight of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will bring them back to the land I gave their ancestors, and they will take possession of it once again. So here is what the Lord has to say about Israel and Judah. Yes, here is what he is... He says, you hear cries of panic and of terror. There is no peace in sight. Ask yourself this and consider it carefully. Have you ever seen a man giving birth to a baby? Why then do I see all these strong men grabbing their stomachs in pain like a woman giving birth? And why do their faces turn so deathly pale? Alas, what a terrible time of trouble it is. Where has been never been any like it. There has never been any like it. It is a time of trouble for the descendants of Jacob. But some of them will be rescued out of it. When the time of them to be rescued comes, says the Lord who rules over all, I will rescue you from foreign sub subjection. I will deliver you from captivity. Foreigners will then no longer sub, uh, subjugate them, but they will be subject to the Lord their God and to the Davidic ruler, whom I will raise up as king over them. So I, the Lord, tell you not to be afraid, your descend, you descendants of Jacob, my servants. Do not be terrified, people of Israel, for I will rescue you and your descendants from a faraway land where you are captive. The descendants of Jacob will return to their land and enjoy peace. They will be secure and no one will terrify them. For I, the Lord, affirm that I will be with you and will rescue you. I will completely destroy all the nations where I scattered you. But I will not completely destroy you. I will indeed discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not allow you to be entirely unpunished. This preaching portion of scripture is selected at the beginning of Advent because of the promises God made to the Hebrews. Uh, we note here the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises to the Hebrews of returning them to the promised land. And when I was first asked to do this message, I was pretty convinced that I would have a pretty easy job of preparing because that's basically what I thought was expected of me to be said. However, as I prepared, the Lord started talking to me about maybe that's not what this passage is really all about. However, I hope that we can take a journey together, inspired by our most recent guest here at New Hope, uh, Amy Jill Levine. As AJ told us on her last visit, Israel means to wrestle with God. I would like to challenge our thinking about whether this portion of Scripture is meant to emphasize God's faithfulness to his people or if there is another meaning that we may be missing. So the first challenge is to determine 
in which genre the Scripture is written. Whenever you're interpreting the Scriptures, you have to interpret it in light of how it was intended to be written down by the original author. And so sometimes you have to figure out exactly what kind of story did they want to tell. And the Bible is written in very many genres. The most common genre is narrative. Narrative, in my opinion, is God's favorite way to teach. Because he tells a story. And you learn from somebody else's experience. I've always been very lucky in that I was able to learn from other people's mistakes, not just my own. So God would like to do that for us as well. Here's other people's mistakes along the way, learn from them. Narrative in, uh, uh, 60% of the Bible is written in narrative. The genre which most Westerners are most comfortable with is epistles. The New Testament is written mostly as an epistle. The Gospels and Acts, of course, are narratives, and Revelations is prophetic, but the rest of the New Testament is written as an epistle. The Westerners are most comfortable with this method because it lays out a logical argument, starting with an introduction, followed by facts to reinforce the conclusion, and finally the conclusion. This is the way what most Westerners think. So they're very comfortable with this epistle-style teaching. Another common genre in the Bible is poetic. Examples of these are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And a special type of poetic writing is prophetic. Most often when we think about prophecy, we think about predicting the future. Crystal ball stuff, you know. Um, however, most frequently, prophetic writings in the Bible do not predict the future, or at least not in a way that's very clear. When we read prophetic writings in the Bible, most often uh, you'll realize that most of them are about cause and effect. God uses prophetic writings to explain the benefits of following him and the consequences of rejecting him. It is this type of prophetic writing that we're dealing with here in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 11. God has asked Jeremiah to write down this prophetic saying. And to summarize, God will not punish you forever. God will restore you to the land. Um, God will not punish you forever. God will restore you to the land. Has any of this come true? It's been over 2,000 years since this has been recorded. It is difficult to understand because God makes a statement that was never true. But claims the Israel, Israelites will possess the land like they possessed it before is a bit of a challenge. Did the Israelites ever possess the land completely? Was there ever a time that the Israelites were not terrified? They were always surrounded by enemies throughout their entire history. Does this make God a liar? I don't think God is lying. I think he is just using hyperbole. Hyperbole is a common figure of speech used in the Bible. Bullinger defines hyperbole as when more is said than is literally meant. Hyperbole 
are exaggerations to create emphasis or effect. As a literary device, hyperbole is often used in poetry and is frequently encountered in casual speech. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I'm the king of hyperbole. I will frequently exaggerate to make a point. <laughs> and I'm sure that you've used this figure of speech yourself many times. If you don't think you exaggerate, ask your spouse. I'm sure you'll find out that you do exaggerate more than you realize. When dealing with scripture, how do you know when the hyperbole begins and ends? That, my friend, is what wrestling with God is all about. Let's consider first verse number six. God asked the profound question, have you ever seen a man give birth to a child? I'm sure some of you mothers out there would like to say that, would like to see that rather. When Kathy and I were expecting our daughter Katie, Katie is right there in the red hair, um, when we were expecting Katie, uh, Kathy and I took those Lamaze classes so that we could learn how to breathe while we were in labor in order to make the labor pains less difficult. Well, that blessed day came and Katie was on her way and Kathy had forgotten the breathing methods. Well, I foolishly told Kathy that she was doing it wrong. I know in that moment, Kathy wanted me to switch places with her. I know this because of all the colorful language that Kathy used to explain to me that she wanted me to be more sympathetic to her situation. Clearly, a man giving birth is hyperbole. Now, in verse 6, the hyper... Uh, now, if verse 6 is hyperbolic, then is the rest of that quote from God hyperbolic as well? Verse 7 refers to the situation the Hebrews find themselves in at the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 15.11, the Lord said, Jerusalem will surely send you, uh, uh, Jerusalem, I will surely send you away from our, uh, our, for your own good. I will surely bring the enemy upon you in a time of trouble and distress. And that's, um, that sounds like verse 7 might be true, a simple statement of facts. Now let's look at the preceding verses, verses 3 and 4. Do, do these seem hyperbolic? Verse, uh, first verse 4 is easy. Clearly making a statement about the declaration of God applies to the use of this, doesn't apply to this use of this literary device. However, verse 3 presents a difficult challenge because regardless of the hundreds and hundreds of years that have passed since the writing of this, it has not come to pass. Israel has never possessed the land that God had promised even before this. Prior to the writing of this, even when Judah conquered the land, they never fully possessed it and always had enemies living within their borders. Israel, leading up to the time of Christ, was occupied by Persia, then Greece, finally Rome. 
In fact, in 70 AD, the Romans completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the children of Israel were scattered throughout the world. Even the modern state of Israel does not possess the land uh, that God had promised to them. And the majority living within the borders of Israel are Palestinians, which have pledged Israel's destruction. Determining whether verse 3 is hyperbolic becomes especially difficult because it could also be conditional. So now we have two choices in this verse, whether it's hyperbolic or conditional. Take a look at verse 11. Notice God puts a condition on the ends of their troubles. The King James Version puts it slightly differently. It says... Yes, I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice. God has put a condition on the end of their pain and suffering. That condition is that they are corrected. God loves his people, and I don't think anything grieves God more than when his people are behaving like they are not his children. God disciplines his children. He wants to change their behavior, but more importantly, he wants to change their attitudes. The Israelites were not behaving right, but more importantly, they were not thinking right. I don't think the importance of this passage that we're reading today is God's faithfulness to Israel to restore them to the promised land. And this is a fairly odd statement to be uttered by someone who considers himself a dispensationalist. But what I do think is important is God's faithfulness to his people to restore their attitude. It is critical to note that before we enter the promised land, we must first enter the promised land in our hearts and minds. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve that is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. As we begin this Advent season, we are awaiting the coming of the Christ child. We need to remember why he came. Christ came to change hearts and minds. Do you have a kingdom attitude? What is your worldview? We hear this worldview attitude bounced around all the time. And there's all kinds of worldviews. There is a secular worldview. There is a Christian worldview. There is a Muslim worldview. There is a Western worldview. There is an Eastern worldview. But there's only one worldview that really matters, the divine worldview. We need to be of one mind with God. We need to transform from worldly thinking to divine thinking. We should be good. We should be well-pleasing to God and to men. We should be perfect. And we should be at peace. We should have the same attitude towards one another as Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.5 says... You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. We should be concerned about the best interest of others. 
Philippians 2, 4 says, Each of you should be, should be considered not only about your own interest, but about the interest of others as well. We should love our fellow Christians. It is amazing what I have seen in Christian circles. I've had the good fortune of being able to see Christian behavior around the world. I have seen the love of Christ communicated in powerful ways. I shared a meal with a family in Ecuador, and I later found out that they had spent their entire month's grocery budget on that one meal. They sacrificed eating well for an entire month so that I would feel welcome and honored. I saw a struggling young mother in Lyon, France, in spite of her lack of confidence, reach out to another woman, another young mother who was struggling, not only with the challenges of being a young mother, but with the challenges of being a North African Muslim in France. I witnessed a Chinese man giving out gospel tracts in Tiananmen Square. The people ignored him, for the most part. Some took his tracts and went about their way. Others took it and gave it right back to him. But some spat on him. Finally, a policeman came and told him to stop. But when he refused, he was struck with the butt of the gun. I've seen Christians doing powerful things because of the love of God and how the love compelled them to care about others and to share what is in what is in an extraordinary to share this in what is an extraordinary way. John uh, records Jesus telling you, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also to, should love one another. Everyone will know that. This is what, excuse me, everyone will know by this that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is what the world needs. That is when the world is looking in at the church of Jesus Christ is the one thing that's going to draw them in is that love that we have for one another. However, I've also seen Christians behaving in ugly ways. And that behavior only illuminates the darkness in their heart. I tell you a fact. All evil action is preceded by evil thinking. I am deeply saddened by some of the behavior that I've seen in people who call themselves Christians. I have witnessed believers in fear. I have seen the leadership of church manipulate the congregation to their own gain. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, And if any have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I give my own body in order to boast, but do not have love, I receive no benefit. I have seen Christians disinterested in things of God to the point of apathy. I have seen time and time again believers putting their own self-interest ahead of the interest of others. 1 John 3.10 by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. 
everyone who do, does not practice righteousness, the, ones who, uh, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. It's one of the powerful things about John. He's pretty black or white. You either are or you're not. There's no gray with him. So we, as the church of Christ, are also subject to correction. We, too, will be disciplined to the correct measure. The promised land of peace that passes understanding will seem as far away to us as the restoration of Israel was to the Hebrews sitting in exile. Philippians 4.7 says, And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the promised land that the Christian is offered, that peace that passes understanding, despite circumstances. No Christian should fear, because perfect love casts out fear. The question is, can we take correction? Will we be willing to change our attitudes? Or will God have to withhold the benefits of the Christian life until such time as we are willing to accept his correction? Do we want to go through the plight of Israel? Do we want to be kept out of the promised land indefinitely because we won't change our attitudes? God is desperate to pour out his blessings on his people. However, those blessings could be the worst thing that ever happens to us. It could lead to our destruction because we are not ready to handle it. I was watching uh, a television show about uh, lottery winners. And winning millions and millions of dollars, you would think uh, all their problems would go away. It's been the destruction of some of those people. Divorces, families torn apart. Squandering of millions of dollars. Ultimately, this passage is about God's faithfulness to discipline his children for their own benefit. So that he can... So that he can, uh, so he can pour out his blessings on them. We can disregard the conditional promises. We can set aside the hyperbole. The recurring theme throughout all of Jeremiah is, "Hey, people, get your act together." Jeremiah 46.28 says, I, the Lord, tell you not to be afraid. You descendants of Jacob, my servants, for I am with you. Though I completely destroy all the nations where I scattered you, I will not completely destroy you. I will indeed discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not allow you to, be entirely, to go entirely unpunished. Sounds exactly like verse 11. God is patient, God is long-suffering, but God does not put up with foolishness. He wants us to change. He wants us to conform to the image of His Son. He wants us to pour out His blessings on us. But He can't until we're ready. It is through discipline and correction that we are able to be ready for the abundant life that God intends for us. And I'm going to conclude with uh, the reading of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11. If anyone wants to join me there.
Have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not scorn the Lord's discipline or give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son he accepts. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you do not experience discipline, something, uh, something all sons have shared in, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. Besides, we have experienced discipline from our earthly fathers and we respected them. Shall we not submit ourselves all the more to the Father of spirits and receive life? For they disciplined us for a little while as seemed good to them, but he does so far our ben- uh, he does for our benefit that we may share his holiness. Now all discipline seems painful at the time, not joyful, but later it produces the fruits of peace and righteousness for those trained by it. It's difficult to accept discipline. It's not easy to accept discipline. But ultimately, God does it for our own good. And so as we think of Advent and as we bring this around to our day and age, we have many shortcomings. I know I myself am a sinner. I don't love others the way I should. I know I fall short. Frequently, we all fall short. That's not ultimately what it's all about. What it's all about is that God wants to restore us to the likeness of his son. God wants to bring us to a place where we, he can pour out his blessings on us. And that doesn't happen out here. Our actions can mask what is in our hearts. It happens in here, inside. Your attitude where your heart is, where your mind is. This is what is going to transform you to be ready to receive the blessings of God. So let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, at this moment, I know that there are people here that need to do business with God. I know myself, Lord, I am a sinner and I fall short. I know there's some here that may not know Jesus as their Lord and personal Savior. I know there's some here who are walking on the edge of right and wrong. I know that there are people who are out of bounds. I ask, Lord, that you would bless us and reveal to us our shortcomings and pour out your love on us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.